0: what we're doing today. We're getting right into the second week of I Love My Town. And again, we are so glad that you're here. At the end of this message, we're going to give you an opportunity to sign up to go to one of these organizations. We're going to give you an opportunity to sign up to go and love, to go and spread some mulch, to go and paint some stuff, to go and do the stuff. And so there's QR codes in the back of your chairs on some of them that have stickers. There's QR codes in the lobby as well. If you just open your camera app, pointed at that, it'll bring you to a sign-up page. Or you can go to ilovemytown.org and sign up that way. But the truth is, God's been doing incredible things through the life of this church. Absolutely incredible things. We've seen people be transformed. We see lives being restored. We've seen people who were in the darkness, who were dead, coming to life. The number of people in the stories that have been baptized at Discover Church is absolutely phenomenal. It's been incredible, it's been amazing. And we want your story to be a part of that story. But when we talk about all the stuff that we've done, and we talk about all the stuff that needs to be done, last week we talked about converting the building in the back to transitional housing. We talked about being, because there's a housing crisis in our area, and it's affecting almost everything. Everything. And so we want to be able to create space for three families who need a transitional home, and we want to be able to bless them. We want them to be able to leave after a year with a savings account. We want them to be be able to be blessed and supported by a family who's sponsoring them, that's pouring into them. And so there's lots of things that we're working on. Again, listen to last week's message to hear about some of that. But, But there's a ton of crises that are going on in our community. We talked about the fact that there are 300 kids in our school system today in in Macon County, 300 kids in our school system who have a parent that is incarcerated, that are being raised by their parent, being raised by a single parent. We talked about the fact that there are are over 3,000 single parents within a 40-minute drive of where we are, that we have some work to do. But so my fear is, and one of the things I want to get across today, is that we don't just become a people who are about doing that we become a people who are about being as well. And so that's what I want to get across today. Last week, the sermon went incredibly (laughs) fast. I'm just going to let you know, I cut several points out of that sermon. And today I'm hoping to be able to rest in this A little bit. And so my hope today is not that you hear some words, not that you hear uh, some articulated vision and mission and a charismatic speaker to kind of like charge you up so that you can get sent out somewhere. But my belief is that better is a word from the Lord than a thousand elsewhere. And so my prayer this morning is that you wouldn't just hear from me, is that you would hear from the Lord this morning, is that he would change your life. When Malik and I first moved here, uh, we moved here with the idea that God was going to call us to a... We we came up here from Miami about nine years ago with the idea that God was going to call us to plant a church in another city. North Carolina, Franklin was just supposed to be a place that was going to rejuvenate us, recharge us before sending us out. But when we began praying about where God would have us, we prayed a prayer that kind of contained two things for us. And I want us to pray that together as a church. It contains two things. The first one is that we're letting go. Whatever ideas or frustrations that you've brought with you this morning, whatever weight, whatever sadness or grief that you've brought in today, I want you to to kind of let that go. Let it go. And number two is that we're receiving something. Whether you've come with this high expectations or no expectations at all, when you come receiving something, it's a way of saying to God, God, whatever you have for me today, I want to receive that. And so with that posture, let's go to the Lord together this morning. Father, I pray right now, God, that you'd be able to begin right now in this moment to fill this space with who you are and what you want, that we'd be able to see the ways that you are already moving in this town. God, sometimes when we see the darkness, when we see things happening around us and we desperately want to make a, dist- a difference, we get... Begin to be filled with despair. And God, I pray that this morning we could see the ways, that we would have a front row seat to seeing how you are changing lives, changing a community, and changing the world in Jesus' name. God, we just pray that we would receive that this morning, that you would give us eyes to hear, eyes to see, and ears to hear, that we would have the boldness to do what you say. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name as a church as a church, we say, Amen. Amen. Well, um, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm a little scatterbrained this morning. I've been talking to people backstage about it. I've lost my laptop. I found it. I recovered it. I lost my notes. I found it and recovered it. And I'm like, what is going on with me? And it's clear <laughs> when you really think about it, but I've tried to suppress it from my memory. I was leaving the driveway this morning because uh, I, you know, I try to get here early before everybody else because it's my time, you guys. And so I'm backing out of the driveway. And as I'm backing out, I, I crash into uh, one of Noah's friend's cars. So I was like, oh, this is great. And so I pull out and I drive away and I'm like, I should just text him and tell him I crashed his car. So anyways, that's how my morning started. I hope your morning is going better. So uh, pray for uh, his friend's bumper. Um, maybe it'll be miraculously healed by the time he gets, gets home. That would be pretty awesome. Um, so what we're doing as a church is we have to ask ourselves, what is it that we're doing as a church? Where is it that we are going? And sometimes, again, we can get kind of scatterbrained as a church. It seems like we're going this direction or another direction. And I don't just want to come up with some verbiage in haste or just say, let's try something and see what sticks. But we want to spend some time in prayer really asking God what it is that he has for us. God, where are you leading us? What does this next season look like through your eyes? And so through spending some time in prayer with the Lord, Uh, Spending some time, I don't know if you've noticed, but in July, I didn't teach at all. I was supposed to take July off, but I didn't. I didn't teach at all, but I still spent some time in prayer, praying, God, what would you have for us? And through prayer and through reading of his word and through different conversations that I had with different people, I believe that what God wants for us as a church in this next season is that we would be a movement-ready church, that we would be a church that's ready for God to move. And yet at the same time, I want to be sure that you know what that looks like. What does it look like to be a movement-ready church? And I believe that today has the potential to shape us, both individually and as a community. My hope and prayer again is that this is not just another sermon for you, but this soaks deeply in who you are. And for so, for as a season, as a body of believers that are in this together. We will be with Jesus and become like him for the sake of the world. That's what we're doing for this next season is we're gonna be with Jesus and become like him for the sake of the world. And there are a lot of different ways to organize the church. There's a lot of different ways to, to think of the church. There's a lot of theology that's wrapped around the church. We call that ecclesiology, different ways to think of it. But when you break this down, well if we're going to be with Jesus, become like Jesus for the sake of the world, it's really three things. It's intimacy. I desperately need us as individuals for the time that we spend with God, not just be the time that we cower about on Sunday mornings, that we are with Jesus. That's intimacy. And the second part is identity, that we are becoming like Jesus. That we, we, we need to become who Jesus is because what our town needs is not necessarily just transitional home. What our town needs is not just people who will love and care on our school systems because their budget doesn't allow for the kinds of things that we're able to do for them. What our town needs is, is not just another thing. What our town needs is people who are like Jesus and do the things that Jesus did. So that's what we we need to know who we are in Christ, that we're not just people who sit there with despair, wondering if there's a solution for this stuff, but we step in, we bring the light and we make a difference. That's what identity is, becoming like Jesus. And then number three is our purpose. That's doing what Jesus did for the sake of the world. And that's what discipleship looks like. So we will be with Jesus and become like him for the sake of the world. And that first part is we will be with Jesus. We will be with Jesus. And for me, that's where this all begins. And again, so my concern is that that there might be some of us who are along for the ride every year at Discover, and we're just desperately waiting for that one Sunday where we get to go out there and do some stuff. And I appreciate that. You're like, finally, we get to go do some stuff. Let's go do some stuff. Just so you know, our life groups do some stuff all year throughout the year. But collectively as a church, we do it twice a year. And so some of you are waiting for that. And I know, and I, and I welcome them, that there are some people in our community who every year are a part of I Love My Town. They're not necessarily part of Discover Church, but when I Love My Town rolls around, they're like the first people to sign up because it's what they want to do every year. They want to make a difference in their town. They would just want to do some stuff. But again, my concern is that you may be truly doing for God without truly knowing Him. Before we do anything for God, our relationship simply begins by being with Him, fully ourselves, wherever we are on this journey. So our walk with Jesus begins first by simply being with him. We don't keep Jesus. We don't come to Jesus with our arms full of our gifts and our talents. We come to Jesus with our arms empty, Understand that we can do nothing to save ourselves. We can do nothing by our own merit. It's, It's God's favor and affection. That's it. We are simply with him. And the story of Genesis, God is creating a world. He is literally bringing things into being by just speaking them into being. And we love this part. I talk about it all the time, how work was created before the fall. Before Eve ate that apple, God gave man and women work to do, and it was good. Work is a good thing. But we forget that God created Adam and Eve. He created mankind on the sixth day. So their first full twenty-four hours on earth was the seventh day, which what happened on the seventh day? Somebody shouted out, "He rested." So their first twenty-four hours on earth was just a day of presence, was a day of intimacy, it was a day of rest. We work from rest, not the other way around. As Christians. We don't rest from work. We work from rest. It's what we do as we've rested, as we've been in that garden, as we've been with Jesus, we work from that. And something I had to learn because, you know, I don't know if you're like me, uh, but I I used to, (laughs) I, I I still feel guilty when I take time off. I don't know why. But I used to think that I had to earn rest, that I worked until I got so tired that I couldn't work anymore physically, and then I could Rest. And what began to happen is I was resting but not recovering. And if you find yourself trying to rest but not recover, sleep but you always feel sleepy, those kinds of things, you are burnt out. That is the definition of it. And so that's what began to happen in my life. But what I had to learn was rest is a gift to receive, not a wage to earn. Rest is a gift to receive, not a wage to earn. And a culture that is all about production and achievement what you what needs to be your mantra is that rest is warfare rest is straight up warfare and i've been blessed with a great staff with a great group of friends that make me put trips on the calendar make me put vacations on the calendar my wife her love language is vacation and so if i don't take one she's like what's wrong with us and i'm like what what do you mean everything is great she's like we need to go on a trip and so I've been blessed with having those kinds of people in my life. Otherwise, I'm going to be honest with you, it's hard for me to rest. So, again, in an age and a time that says you are the sum of what you accomplish, rest stands in direct opposition to that. And, and the Apostle John loved this concept. He, he points out what Jesus says in John 15:5. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do very little. That's actually not what it says. He says, apart from me, you can do absolutely nothing. You can do absolutely nothing. And the Christian culture that I kind of cut my teeth on as a pastor, the capital C church at the time, it was like when, I don't know, Instagram was just getting kind of started and YouTube was just becoming a thing. And all of a sudden pastors were becoming influencers. It's like, what happened? And so what began to happen is people used to began measuring a pastor by what you can bring to the table. How talented are you? How connected are you? How educated are you? How much are you willing to sacrifice your family? Because what began to happen is if you talk about like the hierarchy of importance in your life, everybody knows it starts with God. And so a lot of people would say it's God, family, the church. I talked to somebody else this morning, a young man who is very wise, who's actually running slides. His name is Henry. But anyways, he said, I feel like I need to be on that list somewhere. And I was like, that's super wise. So God, family, you, the church? I don't know. But anyways, what began to happen was the church got to begin begin crossed off the list. And the reason why church got crossed off the list is because it's about God. So the church is God. And so if you're in ministry, then ministry, your job in ministry, comes first and then your family. And so the question again is, how much are you willing to sacrifice your family? How much are you, what is it that you bring to the table? But again, Jesus is saying, apart from me, you can do nothing. And that word abide that Jesus calls us to, that means to literally make your home in. We are to make our home in Jesus. And over and over again, John wants us to know that that is where life is found. That's where the source of identity is found. That's where peace is found. That's where purpose is found. That's where legacy is found. That's where fruit is found. That is where redemption is found. When you make your home in Jesus and Jesus makes his home in you, the invitation isn't to grow fruit, but bear it. He doesn't say produce fruit. Try really hard to make fruit. He says to bear fruit. I spent much of my Christian life trying to muster something into existence trying to grow things, trying to manufacture movements, trying to create the waves instead of just riding them. And Jesus says, that is not your job. Your job is to bear the fruit that the Spirit produces in you as you spend your time abiding in Jesus. The Apostle John in Revelation 2 uh, writes a letter that Jesus is writing to the church in Ephesus. And this is what it says in Revelation 2, 2, 1 through 5. He says, I know your works your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. You have not grown weary. In other words, Jesus is saying, I see what you are doing. You're doing all the things. And in verse four, he says, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent of all the articles that I've been reading. And I don't know if you've seen them out there. I mean, people have been sending them to me from Newsweek to Atlantic, all these different... news articles saying that the church is imploding, it is falling apart. It's as if God has come along and taken the lampstand out of the church. It's as if God has seen the church in America and he's written us a letter. Somebody sent me that meme. But we look at all this and we wonder, what is it we got wrong? We need to come back to our first love and recognize that Jesus takes very seriously when we do things for him, but not with him. When we're doing things for him, but not with him. You're doing all this churchy stuff. You're singing all the songs. You're showing up on Sunday. You're calling out evil. You're testing someone's theology. And Jesus says, but you've forgotten about me. You forgot about the works you did at first. You forgot about feeding the hungry, clothing the naked. Jesus says, what about being with me? When Jesus says to repent, that kind of freaks me out a little bit. Maybe we should listen when Jesus says repent. Repent means to change direction. It means to change your mind. It means to change your trajectory to go towards Jesus. Jesus is saying, stop doing for me without doing with me. Because activity is a terrible replacement for intimacy. Jesus wants to be with us. Jesus says, abide in me. The psalmist says, be still and know that I am God. In other words, there is a knowing of God that you will not know, Unless you are first still, unless you first stop just doing all the things, when we stop, when we rest, and we make space and room to simply be with Jesus, we find Jesus. I think that Sabbath and rest are one of the clearest signs of the gospel of grace. When you sit around and intentionally accomplish nothing and God still loves you, that is grace at work. That is really good news. Some of us have room for God in our hearts, but we don't have room for God in our calendars, if we're being honest. We just don't have room for for him there. We let God into our hearts and we're happy because that means I get to go to the good place and I don't have to go to the bad place. That's what we decided. And a lot of us have space for Jesus there, but not in the rest of our lives. But God has not called you to a life that you don't have time for. Jesus has called us to give him that time. He says, rest first in me, abide in me, dwell in me. Don't do it for me without doing it with me. And that's what Jesus is trying to get across. William Paul put it this way. He says, it is unlikely that we will deepen our relationship with God in a casual or haphazard manner. There will be a need for some intentional commitment and some reorganization in our lives, but there is nothing that will enrich our lives more than a deeper and clearer perception of God's presence and the routine of daily living. Look, I love what we do together. I love this. I look forward to this every Sunday, whether I get into a minor accident in my driveway before church or not. I love what's happening. I love the church. I love when we gather on Sunday. But did you know that God does not live at this address? He is not contained by a certain time or a certain day of the week, that God's presence is always with us. He is always with us with us. What's lacking in our life is not God's presence. What's lacking is our awareness of it. He is always with us. We live our lives as if God is is not present in our marriages, that God is not present when I spend time with my kids, that God is not present when I'm on my way to work, that somehow God is not present when I'm doing those stanky, gross dishes, that God is just not there. What Paul says is to pray without ceasing. What Paul is saying is that God is always with you. And let me be clear, we still need to carve out some time to be in that garden. I've made this mistake. Maybe you've made this mistake. If I pray without ceasing, then I pray as I'm going. And if I'm praying as I'm going, then I never stop. And if I never stop, Jesus would take that, that garden opportunity to have that power meeting with the Lord. He would take, carve out large sections of his time to be with God, and then as he was going, he was continually being with God. His cup was filled first. We need to carve out some time, some garden time to be with Jesus, but we also need to recognize that God is always present. For the Christ follower, you are called to live in two worlds at once, two places at once, while you're driving to work in the presence of Jesus, while you're doing the dishes in the presence of Jesus. While you're checking those emails in the presence of Jesus, while you're giving the kids a bath, and it's an absolute nightmare, you are doing it in the presence of Jesus. You're always in the presence of Jesus, both individually and as a community. We're to be in two places at once. St. Augustine put it this way. He says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And maybe today, restless is exactly how you would define where your heart is this morning, that you are restless. Jesus says, before you do anything, dwell in me, rest in me, find peace in me before you do anything. Now, this next season, we're not just called to simply be, although that would be nice. Jesus, I'm going to take some naps. That's what I'm hearing right now. And that's not what's exactly getting across. That's not what we're talking about. We will both be with Jesus and become like him. And we will become like him. We, we say it this way. At Discover, it's okay not to be okay. We just know that God loves us too much to leave us that way. We want to become like him. God loves you as you are, but too much to let you stay there. there, there the, the more we abide in Christ, the more by the Spirit we become like him. Make no mistake, the promise of the New Testament is nothing short then a total transformation. For those who surrender, who trust, who give allegiance to King Jesus, we will be totally transformed. Whoever you are, who, wherever you've been, you are invited to be a part of this transformed army of people that are just showing other beggars where to find bread. We're just, we're just showing other people where to find this fountain of life. And that language is called spiritual transformation, spiritual formation, that we are being changed from the inside out. D.A. Carson calls it a grace-driven effort. Dallas Willard says grace isn't opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning, that we have to put some work in on this. It's not that we earn God's favor or affection, but in a posture of grace that we have received freely, from God, then we go out and do this work as we become more like him. Eugene Peterson calls it a long obedience in the same direction. A lot of us, a lot of us like Jesus, but we don't necessarily want to become like him. If we're honest, we like Jesus. We just don't want to become like him. We we like that Jesus is there. We like that Jesus is all Jesus-y, and he's doing that Jesus-y stuff over there with with other people. And we keep them at an arm's distance because we would just really like them over there. But you can't be with Jesus and not become like him. And you can't become like him without being with him. And that's a gift of grace. Again, Dallas Willard says, spiritual formation in the Christian tradition Is a process of increasingly being possessed and permeated by such character traits as we walk in the easy yoke of discipleship with Jesus, our teacher. That means that the Christian life isn't just about what we're doing, the Christian life is about what we're becoming. So, my question to you is the next time you're at some place, I'm terrible with small talk, I've got a few questions that I have. Where are you from? uh how did you why are you here you know what made you decide to get here those kinds of questions uh but what if it's you know the other one which is a big one is what do you do for a living if you just met somebody oh what is it you do you do here's a fun one this would be really introspective like hi i'm ben oh you're lee oh lee who are you becoming And it's just like, what? Who am I becoming? And so you start talking about who am I becoming? So make that part of your small talk from now on. Who are you becoming? Because it's less about what you're doing and more about who you're becoming. And it's so easy to list out all the things that we're doing. I could do that right now. But who are you becoming? What if, again, another tough lesson that I had to learn in my life as a leader. This is a really tough one. and And it stinks, especially as his parents, and his leaders, is you can teach what you know, but you only reproduce who you are. You can teach what you know, but you only reproduce who you are. And one of the reasons why, why all these articles might be ri- being written about like what's going on with the church is we're so busy teaching what we know, and we haven't been doing enough being like Jesus. Because you only teach what you know, but you reproduce who you actually are. Have you ever had to fight sin by willpower? That's hard. If you're just sitting there going, this one time I'm not gonna do it, I'm gonna try really, really hard to not do that thing I don't wanna do just this one time by willpower. What we've learned is that habits eat willpower for breakfast. Habits get into our limbic system and they shape our loves, they shape our longings. And how do you form habits? Habits are formed by discipline and, and discipleship. It's formed by discipleship, and discipleship is simply training and practice. In July, I had a hernia surgery, and, uh, and I've recovered from that hernia surgery. It's about a four-week recovery, and the worst part about it wasn't the pain. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to share the story, but I'm going to share it anyways because you guys need a good story. Um, so I, I go to the doctor for my follow-up meeting after like three weeks, and I'm, I'm walking into the back, and the nurse sits down. And she looks at me, and she goes, so... You had a colonoscopy, right? And I was like, No. I had a her- how old do you think I am? I had a hernia surgery. And she goes, Oh. She's like, Well, you're walking around like somebody who hasn't just had a hernia surgery. And that's obviously because of prayer. That's divine. That's supernatural. I will claim that. But but in that moment, I was thinking, you know, like the pain wasn't all that bad. Like, I, I didn't have even have to take pain meds. But I'll tell you what the worst part of hernia surgery was losing my gains, son was just losing some habits that I had had. It took me four months and a great friend, a great rabbi that would hold me accountable to going to the gym. It took me four months to make that a habit in my life. And now I never want to go to the gym again. And so it's like, what is it going to take? And I'm looking at my biceps. Like I put this shirt on. I don't normally wear short sleeves. And I put this on. I'm like, man, what happened? I lost like five inches in my biceps, and from four weeks. And so, you know, I'm trying to get motivated to get back in, but that's what happens when we lose those habits. It's so hard. And the habits are so important because the things we do do something to us. That is absolutely true. The things that we do do something to us. And you need to check what it is that you're doing. We're all being formed by someone or something. We can't just think our way to likeness. And I know that's hard. You can't just think your way to Christ-likeness. As important as that is, the way of Jesus is exactly that. It is a way. It's a way of living. It, it's, it can't just be scripture memorization. Scripture memorization is great, but when you read the New Testament, Jesus saved his worst words and insults for people who memorized the entire Torah. You have to do something. They didn't know how to abide in it. They memorized it. They didn't know how to abide in it. They didn't know how to be changed and transformed by it. We all know that you can't lift weights for a day and see results. Like, I just did a solid 18 minutes, bro. What's going on? Why is my body still flabby? Why am I not super ripped? And so, but we work out for five days a week, for five years straight, and you are going to see results. Guaranteed. Absolutely. God will sometimes heal in a moment, miraculously. But in a large part, spiritual formation is a crock pot. It's not a microwave. It takes time as we are going along. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You notice that, that Paul says being transformed, not when you were transformed, but you are being transformed. It's a process of growing transformation. And yet at the same time, there's an immediate response. When Moses goes in the presence of Yahweh and he comes back, people see an immediate difference because his face is literally glowing. His face is shining. People see an immediate difference in his life, but there's, there's something different And Paul says to the church in Rome, don't conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There are patterns in this world that they want you to conform to, boxes that this world wants you to check off, like you're supposed to hate your enemies, man. You're not supposed to forgive them. You're supposed to analyze the decisions that people made to get themselves into that pit, before you step in that pit and help them, you're supposed to figure out if they're worthy of the love that you'll offer them. To try to rationalize whether or not it's, it's, it's a good thing to give this person a hug right now before you offer them anything. And no, 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 that's your money. Hold on to your money. You earned it. Uh, Who cares what they need? You've earned that money. Your life is going to be measured on what you accumulated, not on what you've given away. And there's patterns the world is going to want you to fit into. But Paul is saying repentance looks like transformation. Repentance looks like transformation as we are with Christ and become like him. And when the Israelites were set free from 400 years of slavery with Egypt, they were set free in a moment. But it took them generations to learn how to live free. In a moment, we are justified by Christ, but sanctification happens over a lifetime. And if we stop at just be and become, we run the risk of being a holy huddle. We run the risk of being the frozen chosen. We run the risk of being a country club church that we come here because we're all realtors looking for new clients, right? That's not what God's doing in us and through us. So that's why that last portion is so important. We will be with Jesus and become like him for the sake of the world. We are blessed to be a blessing. As a church, we don't measure our success by our seating capacity. We measure our success by our sending capacity. Who are we mobilizing, equipping, and how are they making a difference in the world? The more we are with Jesus, the more we become like him, the more we are burdened for the world that God loves so much that he sent his one and only son to die for. We live on mission together. Sundays, what we're doing today, Sundays are the push. Sundays are not the point. It's not the point, it is the push. We gather, we sing, we're edified, we're encouraged, we're lifted up, we're equipped, and we get to see the body of Christ as the whole body is present. We get to see a little slice of the garden here in our town, but that is not the point because then we go on mission together. The Barna Group, I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but they're a Christian group that is well-accredited, that is cited by a lot of the, a lot of philosophers, and and even in the secular world because the Barna Group knows what they're doing. The Barna Group recently did a survey, and it was a depressing survey. And the question in this survey was simply, do you know what the Great Commission is? Do you know what the Great Commission is? 51% said no. 25% said yes, but I can't recall the meeting. And 6% said, uh, I I think I have, but I'm not sure. And 17% said yes and could explain it. Only 17%. That means 83% of people don't know what the Great Commission is. Now, because they're the Barna Group and they want to make sure that they get this right, uh, they they gave people multiple choice. Like maybe it's just the phrase, the Great Commission. Maybe if they saw the verse, they would know that that's the Great Commission. So they gave them five verses to choose from, and still only 37% of people got it right. And I recognize that there are some of you right now that are shrinking in your chair going, I have no idea what the Great Commission is. Pastor Ben's going to smite me. Uh, and, but just so you know, we love you. We love you. We're glad you're here. So what is the Great Commission? What is the Great Commission? It says in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It says, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. In other words, don't worry about what your mama said. Don't worry about what your pastor said. Don't worry about the tradition and the religion in which you were raised All that authority has been given to Jesus and Jesus alone. And because it's all his, this is is what Jesus says we are to be doing. This is the commission. This is the command. This is the great command, the great commission. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the mission for all churches for all of time. That's, that's all it is, for all churches for all of time. And so many of us, we get hung up on a few words. He says, go and make disciples. That doesn't mean converts. It doesn't just mean go get people to pray a prayer or raise their hand at the end of a service. And that doesn't mean get, get, you know, make sure that people gather up in your building. He's saying that you need to make disciples. Not just people who attend a thing, but disciples, apprentices, people who are equipped, trained, and get to practice the ways of Jesus. And how do you apprentice Jesus? You apprentice Jesus by first being with him. The ancients would say, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Not that you would follow him from a distance, but that you would get so close to your rabbi that the dust from his sandals and his heels would gather on your clothing because you're that close to him. And when you would follow your rabbi, when you would take on his yoke, it was really weird. You would basically become an image of him, and so you would eat with him. And when he would eat, if he ate with his left hand, you were left-handed now, son. If he would scoop s- soup and he would scoop it away from his bowl, as Brian does, he says, that's the, that's the polite way to do things. I forget. As a ship sailing away from thee, I will scoop my soup away from me. Anyways, he's a weird guy. But uh, if you if you eat soup like it, if he would eat soup like that, guess what? You're doing that now too. That doesn't seem polite. It seems like I'm trying to throw soup at you. But anyways, that's what you're doing. You would even mimic his vocal inflections. If he would say words weird, how many of you say both with an L? Anybody say both? That is the weirdest thing. There's no L in there. But if you would do that, guess what you're saying? Both now. It's so strange. It's both. Calm down. And so that's, that's what you would do. You'd be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Don't just study him from afar, but be covered in his dust. It says, go and make disciples. And again, some of us get hung up on that word go, and we think that that means we're supposed to get on a plane, go to another country, or go to another nation and spread the, the news. But it's been said, a better translation of that is, as you are going as you are going, make disciples. As you are going, make disciples. As you are going, teach them all the stuff that Jesus is teaching you. Baptize them. And then there's this intimacy piece where Jesus says, and I'm going to be with you. And that's why be and become is so important. And did you know that the vast majority of the miracles that Jesus did were interruptions? The vast majority. He was on his way somewhere else past a town called Nain. Uh, A widow was bringing out her one and only son to bury him. He goes up and touches a stretcher and raises that kid back to life. He's on his way to to heal another man's daughter, and a lady comes up behind him and grabs his his garments, and she's healed instead, almost. He felt the power leave him. And so it's just—it's interesting. Like Almost all of his miracles are done as interruptions. When he was on his way to do something else, he had another purpose, he had another plan, and he was interrupted many of us go about our day with a plan a destination a place that we are going physically a place that we want to get to academically a place that we want to get to professionally and we won't be ready for the interruptions if we're not first being and becoming if we're not first saturating being with jesus abiding with him making our home in him and him and us and becoming more like him Make no mistake, the goal isn't just to be and become, it's to continue the work of Jesus. The first thing that Jesus says to the risen disciples, and I like to think that it was kind of a crazy moment. Like, I don't know, some of you are those people that hide behind doors and spook people when they jump out. I noticed that people don't do that so much in Franklin because everybody's carrying a weapon of some kind. But but if you're that person, I just like the way that Jesus does it. Jesus doesn't go like, boo! You know, what he says, his first word is, peace be with you, and they all freak out. And so what he says is, is, he says, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Jesus is saying, I'm sending you. Jesus was sent, I'm sent, and guess what? You are sent. You are sent to go and do the things that Jesus did. And again, for a lot of us, Jesus is a great Savior, but he's not a great role model. We'd rather just, you know, again, we're grateful for the cross, we're grateful for the tomb, we're grateful for the resurrection and the life that was lived in our place and died in our place. But deep down, we don't want to actually do anything about it. In no uncertain terms, Jesus did not give us that as an option. It says in John 14, 15, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. James says, Faith without works is dead. To worship Jesus at an arm's distance, to know facts, data about him, is not the same thing as being with him, becoming like him, and doing the things that he did. The way of Jesus is is not just a way of ideas. It's it's not just an intellectual exercise. If you read the New Testament, you can't help but like Jesus, like the things that he did, like the things that he said. And we admire him from a distance, but Jesus is calling us to do the stuff, to do the things that he did, teaching the gospel. This is not an exhaustive list, but Jesus taught the gospel. He was praying all the time. He was taking naps. Amen, hallelujah. He was eating with people who were unbelievers. He was standing up against corruption. He was about peacemaking. And again, it's not an exhaustive list of what Jesus did. John said, if you made a list of all the things Jesus did, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain it. But we're not just supposed to just sing about it. We're supposed to do it. We're supposed to be a people of the way to continue the work of Jesus Christ. That's why, again, on Sunday, August the 27th, we'll be gathering here, standing room only, at 8.30 a.m. We'll have one song, a short devotion, and we will leave here. And we will go do the stuff. But again, my concern is that you are prayed up for it, that you are prepared for it, and you'll be shocked when we go out there and do the stuff, how many times you will be interrupted. And I want you to be prepared for the interruptions. You'll be interrupted by the people you're serving. You'll be interrupted by the people you're serving with that just see a good deed happening and want to be a part of it. You'll be interrupted in a lot of ways. And I want to make sure that we are doing the stuff as a church, that we're not just a church that talks the talk, but we walk the walk. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 14 through 16, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. My prayer is that Franklin, that Clayton, that Silva, that Bryson City, that wherever you are from, wherever you call home, because you are there, becomes a light. Becomes a light. As a staff, we're about to take some trips to go see how other churches do some things. There's going to be a day when people begin coming to this town, to this church, Because things are being done in a different way, and they can't help but notice, and they want to know what's happening. And our answer is going to be, it's not something we're doing, it's the person we're spending time with, and that's Jesus Christ. So Jesus says, you are the light on a hill. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, see what you are doing, that you are doing the stuff and give glory to your father who is in heaven. Let's do the stuff. Last week after I was done wrapping up, there was about three people who came up to me, some with tears in their eyes, and said, I'm not part of a church. I've never been in a church before. I didn't know churches do this. And I want to be a part of this. How does that happen? That happens because we do the stuff. We, we be with Jesus. We become like him. And because we're like him, we can't help but do the stuff. I want us to be a people that do the stuff. But again, it comes first from being with Jesus and becoming like him. And so my prayer this week, as we lead up to this big day, we're all going to sweat together. I'm just letting you know. where we all sweat is that that comes from a place of rest, that we don't rest for work or from work. We work from rest, that rest is our warfare. And we're not just taking naps. We're being with Jesus, that he's filling our cups up, and we are pouring that out, and that we can become the light in a very, very dark world. That's my prayer this week. And maybe you're one of those people who've been here for a while, and you thought that that God was an old man upstairs who is angry with you because the way that you've been acting and you were afraid to walk into church because you thought a lightning bolt would come down and strike you in the top of the head. You thought at least two people would come up to you to tell you what you're wearing isn't right or or something was going to happen. You had all these expectations. My hope and my prayer is that you could see that we are a people who desperately want to be with Jesus, become like him, and just do the stuff that he did for the sake of the world.